Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 8 of the podcast, the topic is Reality and Hype in Deep Learning. Our guest is Otkris Gupta, VP of Data Science at LendBuzz and PhD in Machine Learning from MIT. Otkris, <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's another day of podcasts. Yeah, another another day, another podcast. Uh, yeah, so tell I'm me, really how, how, are, how are things uh, looking on your end? What, what do you see out your window? Uh, out of my window, you mean right now? I don't have a window in this room, but I saw a second ago. It's very nice. Actually, it's not a bad day in Boston. It's windy. It's kind of hot uh, and it might rain. Uh, but you know, right. it's uh, it's usual Boston weather. It's always a curveball over here with the weather in Boston. So we have a we have a very interesting topic today, Otkrist. You know, we have known each other for a while, so I, I know your background, and you're a, a VP of data science right now at LendBuzz, which we'll get into. Um, but you've been focused on deep learning in in several different domains that we'll get into in a, in a second. Um, you did your PhD at the Media Lab on uh, you know in camera culture, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I did my yeah. PhD at MIT Media Lab, and before that, I also did my master's there. Uh, yeah, Ex- exactly. And and again, it was on different uh, applications of deep learning, especially image recognition and things like that, which we'll we'll, we'll talk yeah, about. Yeah, right. So, so my master's was more around sort of the optics and computer vision topics uh, than my PhD, uh, and uh, it was around this uh, this technology of looking around the corners. So this is this uh, application uh, or a question that we had asked ourselves that, uh, you know, when you have a camera, uh, you you can look straight in the line of sight of the camera, of course, you know, because everything you can just see it. Uh, but the question that we had was that what if uh, you have some sort of obstruction uh, and the light is being obstructed, uh, but it's bouncing around, it's, it's like it's bouncing around, it's going around the screen. Can you use the the bounces of the photons to figure out what is non, not in the line of sight of camera directly, uh, which is a very interesting, very challenging question that we had asked. It's almost like a scary question. It's like a mad science uh, slash, uh, you know, one of those questions that you, uh, you're like, there's no way this would work. Uh, and then How did you come up with a question? How did you even come up with a question? Right. So, so it, uh, the question itself, I, I would say that most of the credit goes to my advisor, uh, Armesh Raskar. He he had this question. He had sort of a, like a basic idea that how we could solve some a, pro- a problem like that. Uh, so he was like, okay, you know, if you shine a laser, if you shine an ultra fast laser, uh, ultra fast and laser. I mean, what does ultra fast mean? It's basically a very short laser pulse. So it's a laser right. pulse which is femtosecond which is really, really, really short. Uh, And then you have a very fast camera as well to go with it. It's called a picosecond camera, uh, which is also super, super fast camera. Uh, We are really pushing the limits of technology, by the way, when we are using these things. And you synchronize them. You have to synchronize. So the the flash, the ultra-fast laser, acts like a flash. And this picosecond camera is, uh, is your imager. Uh, you start seeing things in a very different way because, you know, you are not just getting the photons, the light, which is coming back, but you're also getting the time it takes the light to go around the scene and come back to you. Uh, and why is it, and we'll get into this this in a second, but why is it that optical and, you know, camera, uh, technology basically has become so instrumental as an application of an early application, I should say of AI. Why is it that this particular application has been so promising? Uh, you mean like in machine learning terms? Right, right. Why is it that this particular application has been of so much focus? <laughs> right. So I would say it's like a combination of, uh, well, the technology and chance also a little bit, I would say, because uh, we were we were making advancements in machine learning in all different kinds of data sets. And there were, you know, small data sets and there were large data sets and what what we found was for large, very large image data sets, the, the deep learning works really well. Uh, it works so well that it actually beats humans now. It's it's much better than humans in most uh, in most applications. There's like a big star there, a big asterisk there. Uh, these are applications which do not require higher level cognitive thinking. So when realistically, when we are doing this, when we are feeding an image to a deep learning pipeline, 
what we are doing is we are kind of replicating the the prefrontal cortex, the part that goes right after our eye. Uh, we are not doing something uh, more than that. We are sort of just replicating that pipeline. But what has been shown is that this is actually both the bi-directional replication in the sense that the behaviors we observe with the machine learning models are actually there inside the neuroscientific when they do the research on neuroscience of this prefront cortex, they see the same kind of stuff. So when would you say that this particular technology started passing humans for these very non-sort of contextual tasks that you are describing right now? Right. So I think the point of inflection, well, there were a few. Uh, I think the big one was ImageNet. There was this big data set released uh, around 2011, I think. Uh, and uh, there was a paper written, a very seminal paper by Alex Krzyzewski, uh, uh, which, which, which what they did was they, they came up with this net, the, this neural network. They called it AlexNet. So Alex Krzyzewski, AlexNet. Uh, and then what it would do is it would take these images, it would do processing on them, it would produce uh, results, and it did it so much better it was so much better than the existing methods they showed an improvement i think the absolute improvement was 20 to 30 percent and relative improvement was more than 100 percent. so they were able to double the the efficiency of the the, the machine learning models that they had uh, and that was partly because uh, well partly because of the deep learning but also this huge data set that was provided as an input uh, and this data set was actually created by Fei-Fei Li. She's a Stanford professor. So I would say that right. it was a combination of both the data and the model, which led mm. to this uh, thing, this point of inflection. And after that, uh, it just took off. The, the, the field took off quite explosively. Uh, so right. if you go to one of the talks, you know, Hinton is one of the godfathers of deep learning right now. If you Jeff go to Hinton, a talk, right? Yeah, yes. Jeff Hinton. So he, you go to him or you, you know, there's, there's Benji, of course, there's Lekun and there's Hinton. These three actually got a Turing award for this. They got a Turing prize. I think last year it was Turing prize. Yeah, uh, and, and I'll link yeah. up for the listeners. I'm going to link up all the three of them. Uh, I'll link up their, their main web pages. So, so people can look it up if they want to. Yeah. So the hint, so if you like, if you talk to him and he says that, you know, nobody was actually listening to them they were saying neural networks neural networks neural networks uh, and uh, then finally they decided to attack this highly application-based problem because they were writing very theoretical papers uh, they had been doing neural network research for 20 years there's, there's a lot yeah of isn't that interesting i think yeah. that's fascinating the fact that this has been going on for so long and then suddenly all of us noticed like yeah. out of the blue we started noticing do you have any idea was it truly that one of them just said guys let's become famous or or, <laughs> or was there actually a true there is a Discovery involved. Story. There's a very, very interesting story. I'm interested. Like, I'm so happy that we're talking about this. So, so it all started. Let's rewind back 30 years from the now. Uh, it's 1989, 1990s, uh, and Marvin Minsky. Uh, who is actually the founder of both CSAIL and MIT Media Lab, uh, he yes. wrote a book. He wrote a book called Perceptrons. And, you know, you see it and you're like, okay, this must be a book about neural networks. But actually it was a book about challenges or limitations of neural networks. Uh, and if you read the book, what it says is that theoretically there are certain things that neural nets cannot do. But wait for it. He was only studying neural networks, which were one layers. So right. he was studying just one perceptron. It was literally perceptron, just one layer of perceptrons. Isn't that I fascinating think, that he yeah. he was basically, you know, very famous as kind of one of the fathers, but he was at level one, you know, in, in all of these layers. That's, mm -hmm. uh, that's fascinating. Uh, exactly. so, so what then happened? Yeah, so he wrote this book and this book caused one of the biggest nuclear winters in AI. So what it, this book did is it killed a lot of research in AI because the book said, well, you know, here's a problem that you are trying to solve and you cannot solve it with one layer of perceptrons. And, you know, with AI, just like everything else, there's always this thing that, you know, once this thing go, sort of goes public and it's like a wildfire, people stop thinking about it. But what he was really saying was that it's just one layer of neural networks for the uh, sev several layer or, you know, multi-layer neural network. He didn't make any claims and it's actually very hard to analyze the map behind them. Uh, they just didn't have the tools, I would say, back then. Uh, and then yeah. what happened is that people stopped studying neural networks. So there are these conferences which were called neural, you know, information processing systems, the NeurIPS. Right. Uh, right. They stopped accepting papers in neural networks. Like the you you listen to Lekun talk about this, and he's like. 
he couldn't get a neural network paper through CVPR like 20 years ago, 15 years ago. He would write these papers. They would get rejected. They stopped sending this work to NeurIPS. They stopped sending it to CVPR, Computer Vision Patent Commission Conference. It's like a big conference in computer vision. Uh, and then finally, you know, they, they fought and they won finally with AlexNet. What it was is that they had the data set. Fei-Fei Li had created a data set. And, you know, Fei-Fei Li had created a challenge. The challenge was do the best in this data set. And there were these yeah. machine learning, other machine learning models, SVMs, random forests. They were doing like 20, 30%, whatever, 25%. And then suddenly Alex Krzyzewski's model comes and he's like 60%. Uh, so you're looking at like this huge jump. And then yeah. overall, everyone's like, wow, how did you get 30%? He's like, well, I use deep learning. I, this is what I did. Uh, yeah. Quite quite a crazy story, yeah. Look, we're going to, we're going to, we had, we jumped sort of straight into the the topic. I wanted to, to just uh, dig back a little bit at your background because, you know, when you speak about it this way, it sounds like, you know, you, you live and breathe this stuff. But for many people, uh, this is not their everyday thinking. I mean, after all, yes, there, are, you know, there is a now a large community in, in machine learning, but how did you even get there? I mean, what was Otkrist thinking about when he was uh, six years old, uh, you know, outside Delhi? Because I've, you know, if you think about your background, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. what were you doing when you were twelve? This is my question. Right. So when I was twelve, I would say any point of time in when I was growing up, if you came and asked me and asked me, you know, what would you want to do? I would always say this: I want to be a scientist. There was no other answer. And my father had this weird uh, sort of a picture of a scientist that scientist was always like someone who would fail the real world challenges, like someone who wouldn't do economically well, someone who wouldn't have a good job, wouldn't be able to support the family. And there were cases, you know, there were scientists uh, back in the day when, you know, they were just sort of like, they, they just care about, they were like rock stars. So there are lots of rock stars which get famous, but there's also a lot of rock music people they're not stars. They don't get famous, but you know, they're really good, but they live off, you know, in vans and, you know, they don't have any money. So it's like that, you know, it's sometimes uh, it can be like that, but I think this is the, this is the era of science. So I got really lucky. I chose a field which I liked, but at the same time, it was very much booming and there's a lot of demand for good scientists right now. Uh, so I was always, I always wanted to be a scientist. And, you know, when you talk about science, it always, physics is, I, I would say, one of the best sciences to pursue because physics is very much like, you know, it's all about the nature, the universe. It's about understanding it and, you know, finding the, the basic rules which drive the universe. Physics is very much sort of, uh, you know, they, they follow strict laws. They're rules and laws which you have to follow. This is what the natural laws are. Uh, so you and, started with physics, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would say that that was like the biggest interesting thing that I had. And then uh, when I was applying to universities, uh, the computer science was, of course, in very high demand. But based on my rank, I could get in. And again, it was so it was my parents who were like, you know, maybe you should choose uh, computer science because there's this. Uh, ah, and I, I did see. Okay. get to sort of pressured into it. I would I would definitely admit that. But it it really played out to my benefit because when you are when you've done PhD, you decide you see this that a lot of sciences are connected, like they are all connected at the top level. Uh, and I did end up doing a lot of physics in my bachelor's and master's and PhD. Uh, it's, it's, so tell yeah. me then what happens, you know, this was a few years ago and then, you know, you got yourself from, from the IIT in Delhi, you know, which is a, a you know, a great institution in, in India. And then you got yourself to, to MIT. And then after that you spent, you know, some rapid fire years at LinkedIn, then at Google uh, and then I guess back at MIT, tell us what went into your mind as you were sort of exploring all these opportunities. I mean, you've worked at some of the, you even had a summer internship at Yahoo. You've worked at some of the absolute top places. And what, what were those experiences like? Yeah, Yahoo was such a long time ago. I think I was in my bachelor's when I went there. Uh, I think it was a very interesting experience. So, you know, there was this whole thing about, you know, in order to make a decision about where I want to spend more time, you know, a long term, I needed to get like a taste of everything. 
because uh, this is what I used to do. I used to talk to a lot of people and ask a lot of questions and try to figure out what they think. And a lot of times, unfortunately, I found their help to be not that good. Like they would tell me something and I would be like, I don't understand. Some people think that the Bay Area is the best place to be in. There are others who are like Bay Area is just, you know, there's so much problems there. There's like, you know, there's no point in moving there. And it was the same with Bangalore. You know, Bangalore is like the Bay Area of India. And there's a lot of infrastructure problem, kind of like Bay Area, you know, they don't have houses there's no there, there's like infrastructure there's roads issues there's issue around traffic traffic jams uh, you know bay area bangalore so i decided to you know what i need to take an internship go and see it for myself experience it uh, it was quite an experience i i got to sort of see what it's like what the culture is uh, i kind of enjoyed it but it was also maybe not the my first choice after i was out of it i was like maybe let's try something else uh yeah, yeah. And that was yahoo yeah. and then i think that that sort of exploration continued so uh, something that very few people know about me is that after right after my bachelor's i actually applied and got into the best business school in india it's called i am ahmedabad it's like the harvard of india i would say uh and then um i went and i dropped out after three days like i literally yeah. went and i took like i took classes i was in yeah. a classroom I was listening yeah. to professors and here's the deal. They were really good. Uh, and I do think that it was an excellent institution. But what I realized was this was not for me. Like this was not for me. And I didn't want to make this big mistake by staying there because I knew that if I stayed there for like a few months, then I would just be like, let's just finish this. Let's, let's, you know, let's not quit. But I had like, I had just the right time. And I was like, you know what? I have enough energy to sort of almost like, just run away, get out. And I would yeah. say it was one of the best decisions I made for myself. I don't think I'm not trying to be, you know, negative about I am like they are very good institutions. There are people who should definitely go there. But for me, I was all about science. Like I want I need to learn more science and that was the path for me. Uh, so, so I kind of like, I dropped and I, I changed direction. So I, I went and I took, took like a job in India in Gurgaon, which is another big hub in North India. It's like the yeah. it's like the Boston or Austin, whatever you want to call it. Like it's a it's a hub in the north. Uh, you know, it's and, so fascinating to hear about all of these mm -hmm. these uh, experiences that you have had across kind of the U.S. and India in tech, because you know they those two places really have been you know for the last few decades so central to what we now know of as uh, you know to what has fueled the tech hubs and and fueled the, the 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 giant tech companies of today let's jump back into into the topic one question that's been bugging me for a while is what's the deep part in deep learning i mean there you know you and i have even uh, tried together to 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 build out and you have helped me build out uh some deep deep learning networks and this question of layers always comes up mm -hmm. and there's a big discussion about, you know, how many layers does it need? And as you pointed out with one layer, okay, well, that's when the whole discussion of layers shows up. There are arguably deep learning networks with just two or three layers that can be immensely more efficient than just one layer. Yet some of the bigger advances, at least in the domains that we were talking about, like with, uh, you know, with optics or with uh, image recognition, have been with deep learning networks with far more layers. Mm -hmm. But there's a complexity and there's something that happens every time you add a layer. And, and yeah. I want to I talk about this duality of the opaqueness of the layers right. versus the value of the layers. So tell me what's deep in deep learning? Right. So, so like you said, and it's deep a good thing. Right? Yeah. So, so deep is very good. So you want to go as deep as you should and not more. Uh, so let me explain what I mean by that. So as you add a layer to a neural network, you add to its functional complexity. So each neural network right. is sort of simulating a function out there, a mathematical function. Uh, and, and what really it is doing is that it, you have this data, which is, which is considered to be a vector. Uh, in math, it's called a vector. It's like a row of numbers. And it's mapping it to another row of numbers. So right. what we say is that there's this thing called deep embedding. It's an embedding. Uh, essentially, you're transforming this row of numbers to another row of numbers. That's all you're doing. You're just converting it. But this conversion right. is done through a function. Now, what they say is that in the real world, when you're trying to model these phenomena, these are highly nonlinear. They are very, very nonlinear. They have lots of twists and, and bends. Uh, it's not like a one-to-one. -one. It's not like a linear function. So to add that, you have to have multiple layers. 
And, and, and the, so and the, each layer then erects as a corrective to the first layer. So you could say... Yeah, that's one way to look at it, yes. So you, right. know, you have this, but there are other ways to look at it. For example, if you look at AlexNet uh, or you know other image processing uh, things, what they found is that each layer learns a hierarchical feature. So the first layer sort of learns the edges, the most basic features. But then they went to the second layer and they found that it was actually learning corners, and so on and so on and so on. so it kept on getting more and more complex. I love this idea of edges and corners, by the way, yeah. because those are the two ways that the first deep learning systems li literally used. That's the definition of a person, isn't it, in deep learning? Uh, the definition of a face is essentially edges and corners. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I think you're talking about hard features, maybe. So hard features are like that, you know, but they're not deep. Uh, I would say that. Uh, but yeah. So when you're building any kind of model, any kind of image recognition pipeline, it could include faces. Of course, you are learning right. these hierarchical features, which are like, you know, lines and sure. corners and, and all of these different motifs. And slowly as you go deeper, you start seeing like actual objects in the responses and the feature maps. Right. So, so, so yeah. So that's the part about the actual layers. But then we ask, okay, what is the what is the opacity? Well, yeah, there is an opacity in the sense that as you get more complex, the function gets more complex. It becomes harder to understand even what's going yeah. on with the neural network. So there's this whole problem of explainability. They're calling it explainability. But what they're right. saying is that these models that we are learning, they are really, really complex. They work really well, but we have actually no idea what they're doing, why are they working so well? Uh, and, you know, what is going on inside this tiny, um, dare I say, brain? Like we are, we are bu like building these neural networks, which are essentially mimicking uh, neural neurons of a brain. Uh, but we don't understand how or why it's working. So this is like a huge field now, explainability, you know. You have a decision from a neural network. You need to explain why it said what it said. Can you tell us a little more about that? Because, you know, very recently, it's become, well, an extremely hot issue, right? Because in the current, uh, you know, kind of racial debates here in the U.S., big tech companies, uh, including IBM, have said, we're going to stop facial recognition work for now. And I think it was Amazon that said, we're going to not let the police use our, our systems for one year or whatever it was. Yeah. So this is a massive debate because the technologies that you are working on have become so good, quote unquote, right? in terms of its execution, that it does stuff at a efficiency level that's really, you know, you can recognize phases, you can put people into ethnic categories, you yeah. can actually start making all kinds of assumptions about people, and arguably it's going in a direction that, you know, could become uh, a little questionable, and certainly if you don't know why they're doing this, and so, yeah. but there's more than that, there's, you know, are they correct in you know, are the systems correct? And two, why are they making these determinations? Mm -hmm. What would you say about the progress in explainability? What do you do to try to explain what layer one, two, three contributes and then what N plus one layer is actually doing? Mm. So, okay, excellent question. Progress in explainability. There, there has been some progress over the last two or three years. I think we have a long way to go. Uh, so if you look at the models that they're coming up with to explain these machine learning models, uh, by and large, they also sound and seem like another machine learning model a lot of times. So there are two or three different approaches that they are taking. One is the approach in which uh, they, they don't actually try to explain a neural network, they explain something like a random forest. And then they say that, you know, random forest is a, deci it's a decision tree. So in a decision tree, you can actually just go on each of the branches and be like, okay, it decided to choose X because, you know, these are the parameters it chose from, and this is what it decided to choose. And then for neural networks, one of the approach they have is something uh, called saliency. So what they do is that every time you have a neural network propagation through the neurons, you can actually do something called back propagation. You can literally go backward. And this is how right. you train a neural network. So what they do is that they do some sort of, a, uh, it's called a maximum or non-maximum suppression. You take a difference from whatever you had. And you take that difference, you backpropagate. And that gives you an idea of what neuron, what neural network thought was going on in the image. And that can be oh, Chris, at this point. I mean, this is complicated. I just want to stop you for a second. Mm -hmm. For someone who tries, would try to get into this kind of discussion about explainability, mm -hmm. is the approach to learn it from a technical point of view and then start to explain it? Or can you literally contribute, at least politically in this debate, by 
only reading those papers that are about explainability and not really reading uh, the actual methods. Right. So, so I think the politics of it actually comes more from bias than explainability. At least what that's what I have understood from the Amazon's issue and the other. So you other see those things as separate. The bias is separate from the explainability. No, they, are they are connected, but they are not the same thing. So bias in a neural network happens when you have a data set which is biased. And there are multiple ways. Again, that happens. One of the biggest ones is that you have a face data set and most of them are white. So exactly. then what you have right. is it doesn't recognize black faces. It doesn't recognize people who are brown color, like color tone. Exactly. Like and and if yeah. that, that's used at an airport, then of course they would uh, find black faces more questionable because, you know, that would be an anomaly in the system. They just don't have, the systems just can't separate between them. So they are put aside as questionable just because there's a, a lack of data, right? And yeah. So that's what actually happens. Yes, yeah, so that's one of the problems. And then the second problem that's coming from is the around the policy. Uh, I right. would say that there is it can be considered a part of bias. It might be third issue, but basically what they're saying is that you have this technology that has been that has that may have a lot of bias in it, and then you're applying it to a justice system which is already pretty much biased. Right. Uh, I, I would say that this is highly opinionated. That's the opinion that they may have, the companies may have. Uh, and then yeah. what they're saying is that, you know, you do all of this and then you build a model and you basically don't improve things. You make things worse. So that's right. why they're like, you know what, maybe we should stop. We need to pause. So it's like a one year pause. Let's not share this model right now. Maybe there needs to be more research. There needs to be more data sets. I also heard another thing that, you know, they found a lot of data sets which had a lot of racial slurs. Uh, I think MIT, there was a data set. They just came into picture. It had racial slurs. So they took out data set. And I would say that the, the thing, you know, there, there are multiple ways to look at it. But it's more about getting, making sure that you have all of the data. You need to have, not have the biased data. You need to have the data, which is the right data. Uh, and so then that, is this that. just happening, Chris, because after all, we have made a lot of progress in a short amount of time and there just hasn't been enough time to get all the right data. I mean, is, could this crisis in and of itself lead us into another AI winter where people become so disillusioned with the results of this? Or, or is there such a push now in your view that this is going to continue? It's just a kind of a minor setback, if you will, that where you were actually perhaps a, a necessary correction where, where people will actually make some strides to, to, to improve the data sets and make them fair and make them cover the globe and all these good things. And certainly if you are applying them to the U.S., it should reflect the population of the U.S. and not, you know, not, not a bunch of white people or whatever these data sets are, are doing. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I don't think that it will stop uh, AI. It will not cause an AI winter. I don't think it can. Uh, AI, like economics right now is being driven purely by the fact that you apply AI to any company and it is going to just completely revolutionize that. There's a lot of different application areas where there is a lot of different scope of automation. Like I'm surprised by the amount of automation that can be achieved right now with the AI that we have, and it is not implemented. It has not been implemented yet. So you see all of these companies coming up with even small changes, small improvements, and they just go and they get unicorn status. Like uh, you know. I, I mean, and you call it AI, but I mean, I think we were going to talk about this as well, right? I mean, some of the things you're talking about are, are actually just advanced statistics, right? I mean, some of these things are just sort of analytical models. They're, they're not what I would call really AI, but they're definitely, they're, they're barely machine learning. I mean, they're, they're kind of like, they're one step above descriptive statistics. I mean, many businesses haven't even counted their beans. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah. I mean, for right. example, I think there's like an app which does restaurants. Uh, restaurants have a lot of supply chain issues. So you could right. buy too much of a food and you could end up wasting it or you may not have enough of it. And there's just periodic cyclical things that you have to just sort of figure out. It's just statistics. So this kind of stuff, which was not implemented, is now being implemented. And there are companies which are doing really well because of this. Uh, I don't think it's going to stop. So it's, it's driven completely by incentive. So in a, in a capitalist system, uh, usually concerns take backseat to unfortunately to this kind of stuff. Uh, I, let's I do, do think that. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, I do I, think that researchers are very much interested in the bias field, which is very good. So everyone's yeah. talking about bias. Everyone's talking about explainability. There's a lot of research going on, which is very, very nice, uh, I think. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify this. So AI, machine learning, deep learning, neural networks, and a bunch of other concepts. Can you just give us a quick rundown? Uh, 
were they listed in the right order? I mean, because some some people say AI is the higher order concept. Others say machine learning is sort of the equal. G- give us a rundown of how you see these concepts and what okay, they mean so to you. AI in a is simple a manner. Concept. Yeah, AI yeah. is at the top level, really. Actually, and then you know, machine learning is uh, my 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 friend, my professor in MIT used to joke this that uh, AI is artificial intelligence, of course, and machine learning is uh, AI that works. <laughs> machine learning or pattern matching is the AI that works so so machine learning and pattern matching is uh, is really yeah you can say that's very much dubbed uh, a new dubbed version of AI now so they are kind of similar but artificial intelligence really encompasses everything so there are algorithms which don't necessarily have data driven uh, origins but they can still be regarded as AI a classic example is a tic-tac-toe in tic-tac-toe, you can have an algorithm which is completely deterministic and it will win against or it will always do the best it can against an adversary. But it is not data-driven. It doesn't have to be data-driven at all, which means that it's not strictly machine learning. It's not data-driven. So it's not data science, not statistical. But it is considered an artificial intelligence because it is able to do that. It's able to do this thing which we consider as is within the scope of intelligence. Like you need intelligence to... To what play. extent, uh, to what extent, Otkrist, is machine learning just an appropriation and a branding of the field of statistics with some new clothes? Right. So I think uh, that question is, well, it's troubling because I, I think I would piss off someone. I would piss off people who do statistics and I would probably like... Uh, get I don't mean to piss off people and it learning. wasn't a critical question. I, I wasn't yeah. actually meaning it in a negative way, but... yeah. They have a lot of overlap. They should be considered right. quite close to each other, if not the same. Uh, statistics tends to be much more sort of uh, about, they, here are the variables, here are some outputs, and you're trying to you know, correlate them and study those kind of things. And machine learning has become a lot about functions, modeling these functions and getting the new. So you're taking these two, these things and mapping them to embeddings and getting to higher order embeddings. So machine learning is a lot more about embedding into a new space, a new topological space, they call it, like surfaces in like sphere dimensions. Uh, And then uh, um, I would say that that may be a difference that we can see if we were trying to do it. I would say that 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 nobody talks about it anymore because people are all talking about deep learning and deep learning is very specific in the sense that it's doing machine learning or AI using neural networks with multiple layers. That's it. You can define deep learning quite well. So we'll we'll get back to deep learning in a second and we'll go into neural networks specifically, which we were hitting on. But I wanted to just hit by these concepts of data science and analytics as well, because, you know, it's been a few years now that they aren't as hot as they were anymore. But if you think about data science, I mean, wasn't that a way to kind of say, well, look, it doesn't just matter the statistical method and it doesn't just matter, you know, what you can accomplish. You need to think about the whole totality of what you're trying to do. The science part of it is making a hypothesis that makes sense. Because you know, one of the criticisms of statistics is that if you don't have a theory, you are basically just doing correlations and you could have spurious effects everywhere. Yeah. So I, my interpretation is data science was an a, approach where you said, well, at least in, in schools, right? You, you were sort of at universities, you were saying we are training data scientists or yeah. industry should be asking for data scientists because you actually have real application problems you want to solve. So you need to know something about various domains in addition to knowing the techniques. So it's, in other words, it's not just about manipulating data. Why, why did that term go out of fashion? That sounded to me like it made some sense. Uh, I think uh, it was a combination of different things. So, so data science was much more you know, conventional methods, I would say, than machine learning engineers, which is like the new term. Uh, right. And data science also tended to be a very data-heavy job. From what I saw, uh, mostly it would involve a lot more data wrangling, they call it. So you're trying to convert the data into right formats. You're trying to really look through the data. And I think that's still true. If you're trying to build a machine learning model, anything except images, you have to really study your data. You have to go deep, dig deep, figure out what are the things that you really care about or you which should be going inside your model. 
And at yeah. that point, you start fitting these models and, you know, you start improving these algorithms, uh, which can sometimes be much smaller part as these algorithms have been studied quite well. So it might sometimes just be running this stuff that you extracted, the features that you extracted and feeding yeah. them. So it becomes very much about, okay, I'm going to go and do wrangling of data. So you're writing scripts like Hadoop and you know, SQL scripts. A lot of friends I knew they used to do that. And then you're doing feature extraction. Uh, and then machine what is feature extraction? What is feature extraction? Feature extraction. Feature extraction is, you know, you look, you look at your data and you decide, okay, I'm going to combine a few of these signals into a smaller features, like a smaller number of features. Uh, and this is something that, again, I think you're right. It's going a little bit out of fashion because neural networks, this is the best part they do this for you. They learn the features. So the reason right. why deep learning is so, like people love deep learning so much is because what they showed essentially is that if you have enough data about any any area, you don't need that much feature engineering. All you need is a good deep learning pipeline. So at that point, it becomes a lot more about engineering the deep learning or machine learning pipeline at that point. It could not be deep. It's in that case, it's a machine learning pipeline. And I think that's, to me, at least, it, it was a lot more interesting because uh, it's, it does involve a lot more analytical thinking in terms of algorithms. Uh, whereas with data science, it's a lot more about just the person who spends the most time with their data will do the best. Uh, so, yeah. All right. So So let's then dig into neural networks. So you've been through this a little bit. You, you talked about this bra using the brain as a model. And, and I, I accept that as a metaphor. And I do understand that the field of neuroscience, you know, has, has studied the brain. But I think in our pre-discussion, I was sort of hinting at my slight skepticism that a metaphor like that travels very well. So I just wanted to ask you this question. I understand the field calls itself neural nets, but it is not brain science. I mean, right now, I mean, you, this is way before Neuralink and neural connections. So we are actually talking about a metaphor of pretending like our methods are the brain. Agreed. Uh, yes, or yes and no. So the first uh, mention of perceptrons, it was by, I think I'm forgetting the name of this person, a very famous person. He came up with the perceptron 1950s, I think, uh, but it was, it was solidly placed in neuroscience. They had understood that there's something called a neuron. And he did say he's trying to simulate artificial neuron. And he talked yep. about cat neurons. This person actually went and studied cat neurons. Uh, and then uh, I do think that the research may have diverged a little bit from neuroscience in the last yeah. 20, 30 years, but it is coming back and it's coming back quite strongly. So if you look at uh, some of the great research which is coming out of BCS, the Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department in MIT, uh, yeah. amazing place to work. I think it might be the best place to do machine learning right now, which is crazy because, you know, they are, they are neuroscience people. Uh, they are dissecting brains. Uh, but what they're also doing is using some of this information to maybe inform their models or even understand them. Uh, so you get uh, these uh, crazy ideas. So one of the ideas, it's called uh, adversarial examples. So neural networks can be, can be very good, but they can also be fooled very easily. And yes. one of the things that really perplexes everyone is that why does a neural network fail so spectacularly on images yeah. which are so simple? You know, you right. look at that image and you're like, this is clearly a cat. Why is the neural network thinking it's dog? But what they found, this is the experiment they did two years ago. When I, when I saw the adversarial, I was like, there's something wrong with the neural network because humans don't have this problem, adversarial. Well, this is what they studied. They showed people the same images, but in a flash. They would only yep. show it for a small time, which meant that they couldn't do high-level computation in their brains for that. And what they found was the same images fooled people. So the yeah. adversarial component worked, but it worked only for the, the first part of the image pipeline inside a brain, which may, which means that we may actually have replicated this thing. Like we may actually have replicated completely. Therefore, they're actually more alike than we would say. I personally think that they have a lot to learn from each other, neuroscience and, and, and neural networks. So I think you were talking about Frank Rosenblatt earlier, right? Yes. The Cornell Rosenblatt. scientist. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Okay, so they have a lot in common. What then about adversarial networks? I mean, is that a whole new promising direction? And what exactly do these things? I mean, from what I understand, you're basically setting two or more uh, neural networks 
you're putting them against each other and they're almost like competing for who's going to get to do the analysis. And then they're pointing out weaknesses in each other's methods, I guess, almost like human bantering. And then at the end, I don't know exactly how you decide on what the result is, but they make each other better by being antagonists in the analysis, which sort of sounds like a, it sounds like a battle for me. Um, what, how does it work when you're setting right. that up? So, uh, yeah, I think you, that's, that's a very good way to say it. It's, it's, uh, if you look at it from scientific perspective, it's game theory, it's game theory applied to neural networks. So if you, right. uh, if you look at the way they architect them, that's right. They pitch two neural networks against each other. Uh, and this is not the only place where they do it. It's not just adversarial learning. Reinforcement learning is another place where they've started doing this. So what we have started seeing more and more is the models that are now winning. The research that's going on now is not just one AI, but multiple AI sort of collaborating or competing against each other. So one of them is the competition, which is the adversarial network, which may have been one of the first ideas that came in. And I think it's uh, very interesting and uh, in different ways. I can give a quick uh, overview of what adversarial networks are. people don't know. The idea is that you have a machine learning model, which is trying to predict something. And then you have another model, which generates examples, which yes. would fool this model. And, and the idea is if you do this, then you become really good at both predicting but also generating examples which can fool. And you can always keep on generating these examples which will fool, which is crazy. Like, you know, you can just fool machine learning models like that. And people are not sure why that happens fully. Uh, and then if you look at other, other examples, for example, if you look at AlphaGo, they train multiple machine learning models, but they were not generating each other's inputs. What they were doing was they were playing each other in a game and they yeah. were winning or losing against each other. The losing AI got to survive. So now they're applying evolutionary and game theory, evolutionary dynamics and game theory to machine learning, which is which is very much the right direction to go. I would say it's one of the biggest things that uh, I'm very much interested in. And actually, one of the things that I did, uh, we called it, it became like this whole thing called AutoML, uh, which was, uh, you know, can you actually use machine learning models to train other machine learning models? So essentially, when we are doing this machine learning engineer job, we are actually taking a machine learning pipeline, you're trying to tweak it, make it better, or maybe making coming up with your own pipeline. And, you know, this was another one of those questions, like, you know, looking on the corners, can it actually be done? We well, that's the holy so, grail, right? I mean, this yeah. is the beginning of AGI, which I think, again, deserves some explanation. But, you know, up till now, all we've been talking about from Marvin Minsky and Rosenblatt, all of these guys, I mean, this is just pure, narrow AI. We're talking about recognizing images. And, you know, you tell me what the use cases have been. But they're, to be honest, they're, they're table games. They're chess, they're images, they're numbers, obviously, they're real things, but they are not things beyond very limited kind of contextual constraints. But what you're talking about now potentially is that one network is training another network that could potentially train a third network. And now you're edging towards this, well, you know, what some people have as their biggest fear, which is, you know, the machines taking over and others have as their biggest dream. What, where are you on that spectrum, by the way? <laughs> I would say that I extremely am, and it's, it is my dream. Uh, and at the same time, I don't think it will happen in my lifetime. Like, uh, the more I learn about uh, AGI and the current uh, AI, I think there might be a few technological breakthroughs which are required for us to get there. Uh, but there are, there have been some improvements. Uh, so let me explain uh, a lot to catch up. By the way, there like AGI is such a broad term, like artificial general intelligence. How do you even define that? Like how artificial do you general it? intelligence, general right? Intelligence, yes, right. Uh, and then I would say that AutoML is not that. Like it's it is getting closer, definitely in the sense that we are seeing that oh, actually you can you can have a machine learning model which develops and trains another machine learning pipeline in which a human may not be completely involved. It may only be like initially you have to give it some input that, okay, what are the parameters? What do I want from this model? And what people have done is that they have come up with so many new models that they, these things generated, which are doing better than human engineered models now. So they are like yeah. these, all these models, like uh, I think MobileNet is one of them, uh, but they have multiple nets which like uh, which came up through this uh, through this process. And then it's the same. So the, the, the concept, the core concept that they're talking about is reinforcement learning in which a machine is able to learn on its own. So it's unsupervised right. learning and reinforcement learning. Unsupervised, some people would say that reinforcement learning is a part of un unsupervised learning. The idea is it's like the holy grail. It's saying that a machine which can learn on its own and improve on its own 
is kind of the first step for, towards general intelligence. In, uh, and what we're saying is and that... And what things have they applied reinforcement learning to so far? Uh, everything. They're they are applying them to image recognition, of course, the basic stuff, but also AlphaGo, all kinds of games, like any kind of game AI nowadays, it's based completely in reinforcement learning. It has to be uh, stuff around robotics. You have to have a reinforcement learning component to it. It's being applied to places like language modeling uh, and, you know, other high order applications. Like uh, I would say that 50 to 60 percent of new AI, which is being talked about, uh, is based in reinforcement learning of some sorts. All right. Well, this is a lot to swallow. What, you, you said this might not happen in your lifetime. What are some of the limitations that you see as fascinated as you are with your field? What are some of the biggest frustrations when you're really trying to make massive progress? What are some of the things holding you back? Yeah. So I would say that I think the biggest thing uh, right now, which is sort of holding back is that people have sort of beaten down this initial pipeline that we have. So we have a pipeline that we do in our eyes. If we can look at the image for only a second, and we can determine in what it is, that problem has now been solved. And now, yeah. you know, still there's a lot of publication going on and sure there needs to be incremental improvement. But what yeah. about the stuff after that? You know, so we need to think about how we can take this time from one second to say five seconds or a minute. Yeah. So there are yeah. higher order problems which have not been talked about. And I think the biggest challenge there is language. So I think yeah. language is one of the things which is still not completely solved. It's not like image recognition. Language models don't do as well. I think the, the best model out there is huge. You cannot run it on a normal computer. And even then, it doesn't do nearly as well as humans do at generating text or at recognizing text, but it's getting there. And I think the bigger, the, another one is this thing, this problem of summarization. So if you give an image to a machine, it will look at the image, it will give you a summary, it will be very nice, it will actually make sense. But if you give it a video, like an hour-long movie, the machine goes just uh, completely in the wrong direction. And the reason for that, well, they are multiple, but one of the things that they talk about is called catastrophic forgetting. Essentially, the neurons, once they, once they, have, once they are done with an image, once they are done with a data point, they quickly move on to the next one, and so on and so forth. So this problem of memory has not been solved yet properly in neural networks. There have been some improvements. There was this this, scare, this scares me when it comes to even fairly domain-specific things like autonomous driving. I was listening to Elon talk about the next uh, you know, iteration, and he was saying something about the next Tesla software update will essentially get us to full autonomy as long as the regulators accept a two you know a 200x improvement upon humans so he's saying that with the next software update you're already at 200x more efficient than humans so it's up to regulators to accept if that's good enough but mm -hmm. what you're telling me though is that yes it may be 200x arguably right better than humans on average but there is this element of catastrophic forgetting mm -hmm. which could come in and bite us in the end. You know, maybe, maybe not just in autonomy, but in many, many other fields where memory is such a fundamental human function. And language and memory, I mean, they are some of the things that make us human. And I'm not trying to be, you know, the critic here, but how are we going to solve those things? Yeah, I mean, in, in the larger sense, uh, these are breakthroughs. I think these might be breakthroughs that we need. I do think, however, that self-driving cars may not need a lot of this. They might just work, uh, especially with the current technology. I think the biggest problem right now with self-driving cars is unfortunately humans. So there are these cars need to coexist with human-driven cars and people walking on yes. the streets. And people do... Some people also have catastrophic things. forgetting. <laughs> My <laughs> wife reminds me of this sometimes. So, so you get this problem of chaos yes. happening there, and uh, yes. the, it's not ready. The, the, the robots are not ready for that, unfortunately. So that right. would be the biggest uh, factor which might have an issue with this. Yeah. Otkrist, tell me about some of the startups that you're impressed with as we're kind of coming towards the end here. What are some of the... So what's some of the work that you've been encountering either, you know, in and around MIT or other places? And, and you know, ostensibly, also, I want you uh, to comment a little bit on the fact that, you know, you've been in, you and I have been in and out of university. So we've both spent a lot of time at MIT, but there's something that you learn in a commercial context that you cannot really do, or you're not asked to do day to day in an educational institution. So 
And I think that is perhaps part of the reason why some of these startups are making breakthroughs because they're stepping out of, of that environment and they're testing things out. What are some of the startups that you uh, are fascinated by at the moment? Uh, so, I mean, I think first there's a lot of stuff going on. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, I was going to point out obvious ones like Pathia is one of the ones companies that uh, I have talked to. I have talked to the founder. Uh, they're doing something very nice. They are trying to do analysis of uh, pathological slides using AI. I think that problem is ready, ready to be like analyzed. It's ready there. The technology is out there to do this, and this needs to be automated. Uh, and there is a lot of different kinds of these kind of applications like X-rays and ultrasound, which could be potentially automated like this. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to build therapies using the AI that they're building uh, and maybe help uh you know, reduce the cancer risk or maybe have a better therapy for the cancer. So, so this kind of application, very interesting, very nice, of course. Uh, the another one that I've heard very, very nice is the, I think it's called Opal. Uh, there are multiple companies in this direction, which are, they are talking about this thing called privacy preserving AIs. Uh, again, very interesting area, also something that I've done some research on. But the idea is that, you know, when you are trying to train these deep learning models, you need right. a lot of data. And this data goes on a cloud and then a model gets trained. Then the problem yeah. is you're sharing your data with the person who is trying to train the model. And there is this problem that this person has access to so much personal data. Maybe they shouldn't have it. Maybe your data should stay on your device. And uh, what they came up with over the last two or three years, one of the models that I built, one of the models out of Google, we showed that you can actually do that. You can train a model without taking the data out of the device. So the model sort of gets trained on the device, a part of the model gets trained on the device, and then this part gets transferred and the rest of it gets trained on the other, on the on the cloud. And you can well, have- I think that off. certainly would be important for the devices such as Google Home and Alexa for all the information they're, oh, yeah. connect, you know, they're collecting from the home sphere. Yeah. So use application in the edge computing in the, you know, in the small IoT devices, there's a huge application. There's application in the privacy spaces. And there's this whole thing. If you talk to, you know, Tim Berners-Lee, I think uh, the person who invented web, uh, he's talking about this thing. He's talking about, we need to have a web 2.0 maybe, which is distributed. Like the web is right now very much centralized. There are these players who control all aspects of web. And while right. actually most of these players may have turned out to be okay, you know, they have acted a lot of times in people best interests. It's not good to have this much power in these few corporations, mm. organizations. So a web 2.0 will save all of your data at one place at inside your home. And then mm. it'll only leave when you want it to leave. It shouldn't leave your, your home. And then web 2.0 with a distributed learning strategy could completely change the game. Unfortunately, there's a lot of policy problems there. There's a lot of uh, stakeholders which may have different interests. I don't know if it'll actually pan out, but definitely very interesting. Uh, I think mm. another one which definitely uh, merits a, a, a name would be uh, Boston Dynamics. Uh, they built some excellent robots and, you know, they have finally brought the robot to the point that you can actually take it and put it in industrial or like industrial environment. And these robots look a lot more general purpose-ish rather than the previous robots, which tended to be, you know, okay, this is a robot which picks something and puts it there. That's it. There are robots out there which are thousands, thousands of dollars, which just do one thing. But Boston, yeah, they're pickers. They're pickers. They're just, yeah, they they're just pick stuff up. Yeah, they just do one thing. But Boston Dynamics robots, and actually Amazon has a lot of robots now it's on its floor, which are doing most of the work that humans uh, humans used to do. And, you know, I'm sure people are like, you know, but humans need this job. But there's another way to look at it, which is maybe humans could do something else, which is a lot more uh, intellectually rewarding with their lives. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's one of maybe a fringe opinion, but I think that maybe humans, humanity could do something else if an AI could do the basic stuff like that. Um, yeah. And well, then I mean, I it's not fringe, that. right? This is the future. Uh, yeah. A lot of people are super worried about robots taking their jobs or taking over or both. But I think what you're pointing out is <laughs> there's enough work here and, and, yeah. I mean, a lot of the economists of the beginning of this century were saying, you know, they would be surprised if we were working more than two or three hours a day at this point. Uh, yet we find <laughs> yeah, ourselves working pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, but I would I think say it was that Milton Friedman so who said that. Things that we want to do, that humanity wants to do, and they need all the help they can get. For example, going to Mars. I think the right approach is to send a lot of autonomous vehicles and autonomous machines 
there, which will do our work, which will do the heavy lifting. They will build the base. Then when it's ready, we can go and stay there. We can go and do our research. It's the same with mining asteroids. Asteroid mining is going to be a big thing maybe 30 years from now when people like SpaceX are going to be like huge, huge, huge people uh, in the space. They're going to be controlling a lot of this. Uh, They're going to be stakeholders and they're going to be sending people to do the asteroid mining. Well, it's going to be very hard. It's going to be very, very difficult. And we need, I think we need to send robots. We need robots which will do this work because this can be automated and it should be automated. Well, we're certainly looking into an exciting future. I just, I wanted you to uh, get a chance. I don't know if you uh, give us just a a little uh, overview of what you do in your daytime job, because it seems to me you're so interested in all these things and it overflows into... I'm sure the evening, but daytime, you're actually uh, getting paid to do some of this stuff. Tell, give me a little sense of what LendBuzz is up to and what you've built with them. Right. So, so VP, I'm VP of data science at LendBuzz. I, I head their, uh, the data science division. Um, LendBuzz is a company which is trying to give auto loans to people who will not get it from usual channels. Uh, let me sort of uh, expand on that. Uh, people who are coming in as immigrants to United States, they have this challenging problem of the credit scoring. They don't get FICO scores. They don't get FICO scores, exactly. You don't have a SSN, or maybe you have a very, very, very thin history. You have a very short history, in which case you are a very risky borrower to some institutions out there. Or you may not have a FICO score at all. You may be a student. You may not have an SSN at all. And what are some of the indicators you guys are able to use? Uh, very interesting question. Lots of different things. I don't think I can go into that. Unfortunately, a lot of this is proprietary. But usually it's something, you know, if you are looking for a car, you come and apply with us. We ask you a bunch of questions, uh, which may be, you know, general or specific to your application. We get some of your documents and your paperwork. We, you know, look at your stuff like bank history. And we. So I found some stuff online, if I can list off some of it. So it's this was, I think, one of your sites or marketing sites that said, you know, education, employment history, family support. I don't know exactly how you measure that savings and earning potential. I mean, they were very vague categories, but they, they are certainly things that don't typically go into a traditional FICO score, right? They're, they're more intangibles. Yeah. So you have found a clever way to gather some data on those things, and then you do the mysterious deep learning on top of it. Is that what's happening? Yeah, that's uh, that's what happens. So there's a machine learning model inside their pipeline, which I, you know, I cannot describe, uh, but you know, it takes these inputs and we, we are able to potentially get some risk analysis on that. Uh, and then parts of this may be used uh, for uh, figuring out you know, how good of a borrower you are potentially. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, there are loan officers out there which understand the space quite well. And then they use this to make decisions, um, use the use the person's application, the data that the person gave to make that. Make the Look, this is super exciting. It's been a, a good discussion so far. As we're rounding up, how do, how do people who are listeners, whether they are experts in this domain and trying to just stay up to date, or they are neophytes just getting into this area, or they could even be that 12-year-old we, we were talking about, you know, Otkrist in uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. How do they begin how, or how do they continue? Because it's not just beginning, right? It's just you, you wake up in the morning and you could be out, out of date. Yeah, uh, I would say that for me, it's not a conscious effort. I have What I've learned is that if it's something that you have to consciously make effort for, you may lose your willpower. If you look at some of these books that I've been reading, Atomic Habits, there's another book uh, I read. And they were talking about, you know, this thing, the willpower is actually a resource that can get depleted. So for yeah. me, it's not about willpower, it's about the interest. It's the the addictiveness of this area and the amount of research that's going on that for me to sort of stay away from it, even for like a day is very, very difficult. Like if I'm going on a vacation, I will probably be checking my laptop or my phone, reading up papers when, you know, uh, I'm my wife is not around me and my wife. I is get good. that. But where do you go? Where do you read? You were t- talking about the Linus Tech Talks, the Linus uh, Tech yeah. Guides. And the, so that's yeah. completely different. So there, there's very little AI there. It's more about computer hardware, but it's also another area which interests me a lot. So I tend to subscribe to a lot of YouTube channels. You know, YouTube is one of those things that I listen to a lot in the background when I'm working because, you know, it has some interesting thing going on. It also helps me focus. Uh, and then uh, at the same time, I have, uh, you know, there's a very nice, uh, Y Combinator has a very nice blog. There is Google now, which has cards. They automatically start pushing you more and more about the area that you're uh, reading. So I've been getting a lot of cards from Google now. Uh, I have mailing list subscriptions. Those are very nice. I think you can get really easily bogged down if you start doing all of this too much at once. 
for me, it was, you know, slowly it trickled. I keep on adding these things, these resources, uh, but ultimately it was interest fueled. It was very much coming from inside. So if you're interested, you love it, just go and start reading these blogs, start following. One thing I would tell is that be really careful. There's a lot of misinformation and there are a lot of pretenders. Uh, unfortunately, there's always this uh, with the thing, but uh, you want to go to the right sources and you want to look at multiple sources. So one of the things that I found is that if I see something, unless it's with a credible source, I always try to find a way to verify it, verify this news, verify this paper. A paper can be verified by something like citation count. How many times have the people cited this paper? How many times have the people used it, replicated it? For something like a news uh, place, I will tend to see if there's another place which says the same thing and how many of the places agree with it. So I'm super careful about uh, making sure that my sources are well. That's one of the biggest problems. Media right now, there is a lot of going on and some of it may not be right. Well, thank you so much for that. Mm-hmm. interview and for this fascinating discussion i certainly learned a lot thank you for your time and uh we'll have to do it again yeah it was very nice uh, it was very nice hanging out here and absolutely anytime you guys want i would be love to come back uh, and talk about this uh, and talk about other things there were so many things that we didn't talk about so yeah thanks for having me see ya all right perfect thank you You have just listened to episode 8 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was reality and hype in deep learning. Our guest was Otkris Gupta, VP of data science at Lenbuzz and PhD in machine learning from MIT with background from Google, Yahoo and LinkedIn. My takeaway is that deep learning is still a promising technique within artificial intelligence but faces a steep challenge getting out of the black box of poor explainability, generalizability, and data efficiency. The future depends on it. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.